Jesus sent his disciples to go get some food. He said, go into town and get some food. And while they were getting some food, he was sitting at a well and he was speaking to a Samaritan woman. And he, he spoke to the Samaritan woman and he shared the gospel with her. And she left and she went back to her hometown and she told all her friends and all the people in the street. And she goes, you've got to come meet this guy. I think he's the Messiah. And so she goes back to the well with a handful, I don't know how many, a crowd, the Bible says, of people following behind her to the well. And Jesus is waiting. And in that time, the disciples came back from Walmart and they said, um, Lord, you need to eat. And they urged him to eat some food. And he said, I have food that you know nothing of. And in the typical fashion of the disciples, they started questioning, where did he get the food? Where is it? Did he go to McDonald's? Where did he get the food? Did that, did that woman give him food? And he says, listen, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And, and I want you to listen to the word sent. It's in Latin. It's missio. It's where we get our name. It means being sent on a mission from God. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And I want to I read for you what he says in the next part so I don't get it wrong. I want to get it, I get it right. He says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. And I imagine that when he says that, he's saying, look, there's a crowd of people coming from Samaria. The fields are white. Just go look at them. And he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So you see, he's melding these two metaphors, the metaphor of the harvest and the metaphor of the gospel. He's saying, look, we're already reaping fruit for eternal life. And then he says, so that the sower and the reaper, I like this verse, may rejoice together. For here is a true saying, one sows, another reaps. I sent, there's that word sent again, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So Jesus says, look, the fields are white. There's people coming. I've already shared the gospel with one of them. She's gone and shared the gospel with the rest of them. They're all coming up here. All you've got to do is pick the fruit. And Jesus says, my very sustenance, my very food is to spread the gospel and bring in fruit. And I find that amazing. As we end our series in Colossians, we're going to end talking about two things. We're gonna, Paul's going to end by talking to us about prayer. He's going to tell us what we should pray for and how we should pray. And then he's going to tell us that we need to be engaged in the mission of Christ, that we need to be doing evangelism. So I'm so excited that we're going to end this phenomenal series on the cosmic Christ with everyone's two favorite Christian subjects, prayer and evangelism. Everyone loves to go to church and hear the pastor tell them they need to pray better. Amen. You need to pray more. Everyone loves to go to church and hear the pastor tell them how horrible they are at evangelism because the world's going to hell in the handbasket and you don't care. So... In case you ain't picking up what I'm throwing down, I'm being kind of sarcastic. These are not the two favorite subjects of Christians. They're actually the least favorite. I've been working in church ministry for about 20 years, and I can tell you, every time we've had a prayer ministry or a prayer meeting or a prayer conference, they were, they were, they were not well attended. And sometimes we'd have missions conference and evangelistic trainings. Again, not well attended. For some reason, we don't like prayer and evangelism. And I think there's good reason for that. So I say it again. I'm so excited that we get to end this phenomenal series on prayer and evangelism, aren't you? Yeah. Well, let me tell you what I'm not going to talk about tonight. I am not going to make you feel guilty 
that you need to pray more. And I'm not going to make you feel guilty that you're a horrible evangelist, okay? It's not my job to make you feel like you need to do better and be gooder and try harder when it comes to prayer and evangelism. If you know me at all, that's not my style. I'm not going to make you feel guilty. But, but what I do want to do is I want to change the way we think about prayer and change the way we think about evangelism. I want to give us a paradigm shift because I think we need it. Because I, 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 think, I think our minds need to be freed from some sort of bondage to these two things. Because I think in our evangelical mind, we've been bound to this legalistic way of looking at both prayer and evangelism. Let me tell you what I mean. I think we instinctively see it as like the super spiritual Navy SEAL black op soldier Christian thing, right? You think of the guy who gets up at 4 a.m. every morning and he's on his knees praying for the president of the United States and the children in the Botswana. And then you think of the guy who goes to the, to the mall, he's passing out tracks to teenagers, scarring them for life because all they really want to do is hang out at Abercrombie. <laughs> and you think of those two people when you think of prayer and evangelism. And if I could just pray like that guy, and if I just had the courage of that guy, then I would have it. And so what I want to say is tonight, I want to free you from thinking in that way. Because I think prayer and I think evangelism are something completely different. And I think we've missed it or else we would like it more. So let's look at what Paul says. We're going to look at these verses, um, the, and it's found in um, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. He says he's going to tell us what to pray for, and then he's going to tell us how to pray. First he says, pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So Paul says, I want you to pray for an open door for the gospel. What does that mean? Paul actually uses this phrase quite a bit. It's not, this, this is not the only time he uses this phrase, pray for an open door for the word, open door for the gospel. There's a couple of verses. In Acts 14, he says, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians, he says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. And then in 2 Corinthians, he says a similar thing. When I came to Trous to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not really at rest. So you see in all three of these instances, God's the one who opens the door, right? God is the one who opens the door. And when the door is open, things happen. In the Acts passage, it says Gentiles receive the gospel in faith. So God opens the door for Gentiles to have faith. In the 2 Corinthians passage, it seems to suggest that God changes a climate. He changes the environment so that people will receive the gospel. They're willing to listen. Paul says, I've got a wide door of ministry. People are listening to the gospel, and they're, but there's still also adversaries. Piper says, I take these three verses to mean that when Christians pray, God changes circumstances and attitudes and receptivity for the word, so that instead of hitting a brick wall, the word finds an open door and becomes unusually effective. So check this out. When Christians pray for an open door of the gospel, God goes in and changes the climate so that hearts will melt and doors will open. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when Christians pray that God will open the door, he changes the circumstance? I hope that you believe that? I, I'm beginning to believe that. We have really no business in planting a church if we don't believe that. 
I believe that if we pray that God will open the door, we're going to have some open doors. And then he prays for a second thing. He says, and that I may make it clear, which is how I really ought to speak. And I think this is interesting. Paul says, just because God opens the door for the gospel doesn't give me the right to be shoddy in my communication about it. I've got to be clear. And I, and he, and I think it's interesting that Paul asks for a whole church to pray for him to be clear when he preaches the gospel. If there's one man who probably preaches the gospel clearly, it's Paul. And if you've been in any sermon from this series, you know that Paul preaches the gospel clearly in every single message. Every single lesson we've had, God has, I mean, Paul has explained the gospel clearly. I'll tell you what he says. He says, the gospel is good news. First, it's news. And news is something that happened in the past that you hear about. So it's news that happened in the past. It's not news about something that you need to do. That's not news. It's news about something that someone else has already done. That's news. And it's good. It's joyful news because when you hear it, you respond to it and your life is transformed. The reason why the good news is good news is because Jesus died on the cross. That's what he did in the past. And that death changes your life and gives you access to God. Another way of saying it is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's good news. And it's really quite simple. But Paul says, pray for me that when I preach the gospel, it will be clear. It'll be sharp. I can't be preaching other things. We're not going to preach morality. We're not going to tell people to chase after the shadows. We're going to pursue, tell people to pursue Christ the substance. Let Christ take care of the shadows. Let Christ take care of the externals. So pray for an open door and then pray that I'll make it clear this, this past Thursday, our community group gathered together. We were praying for um, outreach. We wanted to reach out to our community. Lord, give us opportunities to reach out to our community. And one of the guys in our community group, he prayed. He said, Lord, please open doors. And when those doors are open, let us stick our foot in it. And I kind of started laughing when he said that because I don't think he knew I was preparing this message. And it was pretty profound. When the door opens, we got to stick our foot in there. And then we get this little crack. And when, with that crack, we got to shoot a clear gospel into it so they'll hear it. We've only got a small window most of the time. So let's make it clear. And then he's going to tell us how we should pray for these things. So first, pray for open door, pray for clarity, and then here's how. And he's going to give us three things, a threefold rhythm, if you will. First, he's going to say, pray steadfastly, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we all know what steadfastly means, right? It means do it. And it means do it a lot. It means do it all the time. It means do it consistently. If it's not casual, but it's causal, we're doing it all the time. We're praying steadfastly. And as you're praying steadfastly, he adds this term, be watchful. Be watchful. Watchful for what? Well, here, here's, what I want, here's what, how I think it might change our paradigm about prayer because it's changing mine. He wants us to be watchful for the open door. Literally, this word watchful could be translated, stay awake, be awake, be alert. It's a military term. It's like the guy who's standing guard over the army. He's alert and he's watching while they're sleeping. And Paul is essentially saying, you're to keep watch over a sleeping world. By the way, God loves that world. Remember, for God so loved the world. N.T. Wright, a famous commentator says, Christians are to keep awake looking out on the sleeping world, which as the object of God's love is also to be the object of his people, people's regular and steady prayer. So we're, we're, we're awake, 
We're looking over the sleeping globe and we're looking for opportunities. We're looking for an open door and we're doing this constantly. And then Paul says, and be thankful. What do you think Paul wants us to be thankful for? I think it's clear in this whole letter, he wants us to be thankful for when those doors open and when the gospel is clear and the gospel is responded to, be thankful. I'll tell you why I think that. Because if you look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, we opened with that verse the first day. Paul essentially says all the same things there that he's saying here. So he's closing the book with the same verse that he opened the book with, except for with a twist. When he opened the book, he says, we pray for you. And we're thankful for you because the gospel is at work in you. And we're thankful that the gospel is increasing in all the world because of you. And so now he's saying, now I want you to pray for me. And I want you to pray that the gospel is open for me. And I want you to pray that clarity is happening for me. And then I want you to continue to pray for that and then be thankful when the gospel is increasing in all of the world. So this is why I think it changes our paradigm about prayer. You see, we don't pray just to pray more. We pray for the gospel. I cannot tell you how many sermons I've heard that said, you need to pray more and you need to pray better and you need to pray more better. And every time I heard those sermons, I thought, yeah, it's true. I do need to pray more better. And then I would feel convicted and I would try harder and do better for a little while until I'd forget to pray again. But this is different. Don't you feel like this is a little different? We're going to pray for an open door for the gospel. And we're going to pray for clarity of that gospel. And we're going to watch over the sleeping world and just be praying for them like you would your child when they're asleep. Lord, bless their soul. Let them be saved. Please let my children be saved. And then whenever the open door happens and the gospel increases, you say, hallelujah, thanks be to Jesus. So God is saying, I'm pleased when you pray for me to open doors. And then when I open doors, you see that I open them and then you give me the thanks. We get to be partners in this whole gospel thing. This week, one of my mentors called me and he goes, Mike, how are you doing at the church planting? I said, yeah, you know, I said this and that and that and the other. He said, give me one highlight from the church planting world. And I was quick to answer. I said, I'm learning that God is the Lord of the harvest. <laughs> I said, I think he's teaching me this. Because we passed out like 20,000 door hangers, and I'm not even exaggerating. Free hot dogs, free popsicles, free breakfast bars. We did all kinds of outreach, and I thought we'd at least get 10, 20 people showing up, say, y'all, the best church I ever heard of. That didn't happen. And there were times where I was kind of like scared, you know, shaking in my boots. Are we going to make it? And so I just fell on my knees, and I would pray and say, God, please bring people. Bring someone. That maybe from the street sign. Maybe, maybe they just stumbled upon it on the website. I don't know. You can do it. And then he did. And when he did, he brought some of you. And when he did, it was like obvious he did it, not the popsicle, you know. He did it. And when he did it, I'll be honest with you, I was standing right out there and I was like, you, you're good, you, you answered my prayer. I, now I'm learning, I'm learning. And I told my mentor that and he laughed, which, which I found encouraging. He said, you know, I've learned that before too. <laughs> I was, I was a, a missionary in Russia and all over the world and God has taught me that hundreds of times. And isn't it interesting that God must reteach us that all the time? I continue to forget. Sometimes the easiest thing is the one thing we never do. Just pray he's Lord of the harvest. And I think that God wants us to know, look, your popsicles in some way are sowing a seed. 
And you can sow seeds, and I want you to sow seeds. And I don't think popsicles are a bad idea. We're going to continue to do popsicles and other things. We plant those seeds, but God says, never forget, I'm the one who brings the harvest. You can plant it, you can water it, you're encouraged to, but I bring the harvest. We have this awesome responsibility to pray for open doors, to, to preach clear gospel, and then keep a watch over those open doors. And when they happen, we say, it's God. It's all God. Isn't he good? Jesus tells us to pray like this, on earth as it is in heaven. He wants the gospel to increase on the earth. God told us to pray like this, ask and I'll give the nations to you. God wants the gospel to increase on this earth. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers, says this, God is always previous. I love this quote. God is always there first. And so we pray for an open door of the gospel in O'Fallon. God says, I heard that prayer. And he goes and opens doors. And then we go in and we share the gospel or we just give them a popsicle and we let them know that we love Jesus and we'd like to introduce them to Jesus. And God changes the climate so that their hearts are softer to receiving the gospel. God is always previous and we can't grow this church until we pray first. So what I want to do is for the next three or five minutes is as a table, I would ask you to pray like Paul just taught us to pray. Steadfastly, watchful, and thankful. Would you pray for God to open doors of the gospel here in O'Fallon for this church to reach people and other churches to reach people too? And would you pray for clarity of the gospel that we can proclaim the gospel clear every chance we get? Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and gave us salvation. We could never be more thankful than we be thankful enough for that. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, we know that it pleases your soul because you asked us to pray for the harvest, to pray for souls to come to Christ, to pray for souls to be redeemed. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would open a door and O'Fallon. I pray, Lord, that you will soften the ground. I pray that you will soften hearts. I pray that you will open hundreds of doors, even now that your spirit would go over this place and start opening doors. I pray for Springhurst, and I pray for Avondale, and I pray for Countryshire, and Preston Woods, and Windgate, and I pray for all of these communities, Lord, that we're targeting, and all of the neighborhoods around here that I don't know the names of those neighborhoods, but I pray, Lord, that you would open doors, and that you would send missionaries into those places and save people's souls. I pray, Lord, that you will melt hearts. I pray, Lord, that you will open doors. And some of us in this room, we might need you to open the doors of our mouths. I pray, Lord, that you will give us strength and you'll give us courage to, to see the open door and stick our foot in it and open our mouths. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us courage, you'll give us opportunity, and you'll let us know that you're with us. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we prayed for open doors and we prayed for clarity what do you think Paul's going to tell us to do next? <laughs> Evangelism. <laughs> you can't pray for open doors and clarity and then say, all right, I'm going to watch the Avengers now. <laughs> Again. C.S. Lewis, another one of my favorite writers, says this in his book called The Weight of Glory. He says, the salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or the preservation of all the epics and all the tragedy tragedies in the world. 
Listen to this. The glory of God, and as our only means to glorify him, the salvation of human souls is the real business of life. Sometimes C.S. Lewis needs to be translated, so let me translate that for you. He, we all know that the chief end of man is to glorify God and, and, um, and to enjoy him forever. Thank you for not forgetting that. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And C.S. Lewis is saying, and our only way to glorify him is by the salvation of souls. And so essentially, the chief business of man on this life is to save souls. I love this quote. C.S. Lewis says, our only business is to save souls, the salvation of human souls. So Paul's going to tell us how to do evangelism, everyone's favorite subject. Let's listen to what he says. He says this, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So there's about four or five things here. I want to break them up and talk about them a little bit. The first one is walk in wisdom towards outsiders. I like this one. Why do you think Paul says walk in wisdom towards outsiders? Or let me, maybe I should ask the question a different way. Do you think the church has done a good job at walking in wisdom towards outsiders? <laughs> I guess there's two ways of answering it. One way would be is what do insiders think the answer to that question is? And the other one would be what do the outsiders think the answer to that question is? I once saw a movie entitled, Lord, Please Save Me From Your People. What, what do you think the producers of that movie think the answer to that question is? Just like you said, Jim, no. We've not walked in wisdom towards outsiders. So why does Paul even have to tell us to walk in wisdom towards that? And what does he mean by it? Can I tell you what I've been told he means by it all my life as a Christian? This is what I've heard. What Paul means by walking in wisdom to outsiders is be a perfect example so that when people see you, they'll love Jesus. And that's, that's maybe, maybe true. I mean, you should be a good example and you could probably find verses that back that up. But I think there's a problem with that. One problem is, well, how's that working? <laughs> yeah, right. How many people do you know who got saved because they noticed you didn't drink a beer? You didn't order a beer. I'm just, praise Jesus now. I'm a Christian because you are amazing. I think the problem with thinking like that is just two problems. The first is it assumes that people care. <laughs> Right? It assumes that they care whether or not you drink a beer or not. Or whatever. Fill in. You know, watch the rated R movie or wear blue jeans or something like that. And secondly, it assumes that you could be a good example. I mean, even if you strived your hardest to be the best example you could be, chances are the only thing you're communicating is I'm holier than thou. And then they just get turned off and you've not set a good example at all. And aside from that, trying hard to be the good example puts the focus on me, not on them right? So all you're doing is really caring about how good do I look, and you kind of look like Angela at the office. You know what I'm saying? If you've ever seen the office? Okay. I love this verse. Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. This is going to get good. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside of the law, I became to one outside of the law so that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by 
all means, I might save some and I do it all for the sake of the gospel. If that's not a mission statement, I don't know what is. And I kind of wonder how we would transpose that in our own world, you know, for myself. If I want to make it my mission statement, what would it sound like? You know, to a, to a Democrat, I'll become a Democrat. To a hipster, I'll be hip. To a sports fanatic, I'll talk sports all day. To a hunter, I'll talk deer, right? Maybe you guys can help me fill in some one-liners. To a what, you'll be a what. Anyone got one? How do you transpose this in your life? I know I already took yours with the hipster thing, but, but you know. <laughs> Anybody got one? Think about it. How would you transpose that in your life? And then he says this. Make the best use of the time. That sounds kind of ominous. Make the best use of your time. That means you can never watch the Avengers, right? <laughs> the, <laughs> that, that's a good point. Because to, to an Avenger, yeah. To an Avenger watcher, I become an Avenger watcher. I like that. Making the best use of your time. Literally, this could be translated, buying it up. Or buying it out. That's what it, that's what it has in the force in Greek, which means snatch it up. It's an opportunity that needs to be snatched. You need to buy it all up before it's too late. It's a Black Friday sale, and you've only got today. Snatch it up. This past week, I ran out of anti-acid medicine. You know, I have to take this stuff because of my affinity to hot wings. Um, <laughs> and I and I, I take the same. You know, that acid medicine that um, Larry the Cable Guy, aka Tomater. You know who Tomater is, right? He advertises this on the television. I hate buying it because it's so blooming expensive. And so I go to the drugstore to get some of this medicine. And here it is in a bottle. There's like 14 tablets in a bottle and it's $9. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should stop eating hot wings. And then I look right above it and in the same, the same brand, the same bottle, 14, but in the super pack, three pack, you know, container is on sale for $9. So you get three for the price of one. Or you can buy one for the price of one. And you know what I said? gum! in the spirit of uh, Tomater. And do you know what I did? I snatched him up. And we need to start thinking of the gospel that way. When you have an opportunity like that, you buy them out. You buy them up. You snatch them up. You need those things if you're going to eat hot wings anyway. So you got a new neighbor that moves into your street? Snatch that sucker up. You got a family member or a friend who asks you some remotely spiritual question? You better snatch it up. You got to make the best use of your time. And then he says, let your speech be always full of grace. Well, what does that mean? The gospel message is essentially a message of grace, right? Jesus died for you while you were a sinner, and it's all because of grace. So if the message is all about grace, maybe our speech should be full of it. Grace, that is. Let your speech <laughs> be full of grace. That means you don't have to tell them that God hates the gays. You tell them that Jesus loves sinners. You don't have to tell them that God hates divorce. You tell them that Jesus is in the business of reconciling broken relationships. Let your speech be full of grace. What else could Paul possibly mean with that sentence? I might not need to say this to you. Maybe you're full of grace with your mouth. But, but I do need to say this because you all agree we're not walking in wisdom to outsiders. And I believe that so many people have been turned off by the gospel simply because of arrogant and harsh messengers. Can I get an amen to that? What happened to grace? 
let your speech be full of grace. And then he says, and salt. So let your speech be full of grace and full of salt. He says, let it be seasoned with salt. And here's another misconception, I think, that I heard growing up. Sometimes when the Bible talks about salt, it's talking about preserving the truth. But sometimes it's talking about seasoning it. Let me tell you why that's important. Because some people have taken this verse and says, be gracious in truth, right? So I'm being gracious, but I'm bringing the truth. God does hate gays. (sighs) No, this is not about preserving the truth. When Jesus says, be light and be salt, that's preserving the truth. That's putting a light on the truth. But here he's talking about seasoning. I mean, that's what he says, right? Seasoned with salt. So what does that mean? Make it taste good. Spice it up a little. Make it interesting. Have a lip full of grace and make it interesting. One commentator said, the metaphor of salty speech was common one. It was a common metaphor in the ancient world. They often talked about, hey, you got salty speech. Paul knows that a tedious monologue, listen to this, is worse than useless in evangelism. Can I just say, you probably already know this, but I've done that. I've monologued. One time I had a good friend who was not a Christian. I waited tables with him. He finally sat down with me at the trailhead here in St. Charles. And he said, all right, Mike, I'm going to give you five minutes. Give me the gospel. And I started in Genesis. And I didn't make it to Abraham before he said, this is just too myopic. And I'm like, what's myopic mean? I didn't even know what myopic meant. I blew it. It did not taste good. It was a monologue. Sometimes we say, you're an evil, wicked sinner, and you're going to hell, and you need a savior. That's not very, um, doesn't taste good to me, you know? Make it interesting. And then he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So this is interesting. I love that Paul doesn't say, here's how you should answer every person. You tell them that they're a sinner, that they're in desperate need of salvation, and God is bringing it to them. And if they don't accept Jesus in their heart as their Savior, they're going to die and go to hell and rot forever. Paul doesn't say, you teach them the four spiritual laws. You teach them the Roman road. You take a napkin and you draw two cliffs with a big gap in the middle and put a cross in it and tell them they can walk across it. Paul doesn't say that. He says, do this. Walk amongst them in wisdom. Let your speech be full of grace because you're going to need it. Let it be interesting. Let it be spicy. Let it be lively. And then you'll know how you ought to answer them. It's not a one size fits all. You can't just go in and say, you're going to hell. You need Jesus. That doesn't work. You got to get to know them. You got to get to love them. You got to know them and know their needs. And then God will reveal to you, here's how they need to hear it. And here's when they need to hear it. Probably not today. It might be later. You can snatch up that opportunity if it is today, though, but it might be later. This is interesting. I think this might be why people don't like evangelism. I mean, this may be a different kind of evangelism than you've heard of in the past, but it's still overwhelming. Listen to what Paul says. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the best use of all your time. Let your speech always be gracious. Season it with salt so that then you'll know how you ought to answer. Anyone feel a little inadequate? I feel inadequate. That might be why we don't like evangelism. I I want you maybe to have this discussion. 
because I have pictures in my mind when I hear the word evangelism. I'll, I'll give you one. One picture I have in my mind is of a guy on a college campus who's passing out tracts, and he wants to talk to you. You know what I mean? He's not just going to pass out tracts. He's like, <laughs> he's going to pull you in. And he wants to ask you some really important questions. Has this ever happened to you on campus? No, not yet. It will. He wants to ask you some questions like this. If you die today, how do you know you'll go to heaven? <laughs> or... If you died today and you went to heaven and Peter was standing at the gate and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? <laughs> and I'll be honest with you, I don't even want to answer those questions. And if you're a normal person who doesn't even believe in God and you're walking on the campus, you're like, why is Peter standing at a gate? I mean, is there really a gate? Yeah. What's, who's Peter? <laughs> What's the answer? <laughs> I don't even know if I believe in heaven. What is this all about? The other picture I have of evangelism is of an airplane. And I don't know what it is about airplanes, but everyone wants to do evangelism when they're on an airplane, right? And so, yeah, and, and, and the problem with it is you've got about three minutes before they stick their earbuds in their ear, you know? So, so yeah, you're on an airplane, you start talking, you're trying to think, oh, Lord, please let me win them for you. Let me have a conversation to bring you to, them, to you. And as soon as you do, they, they put their earbuds in. The problem is that... If you don't fly very often, you don't get a lot of chance to practice your airplane plan, you know? And so most of the time it goes south. And if you do fly often, some of you do, then you've learned, how to, you've learned the art of being invisible, right? So you don't have to talk to anybody. So those are the two pictures I get when I think of the word evangelism. And I don't think it's the picture that Paul gives. And I don't think it's the picture that I want to give you tonight. What kind of pictures do you have? What kind of experiences have you had? Well, maybe you've tried evangelism and you've succeeded. Maybe you failed. Maybe someone has asked you those questions. If you die today, how do you know for sure you'll go to heaven? Talk about that a little bit. I want to hear what your, your, your conversation would be like. We have three minutes. Let me say this. I'm not anti-evangelism. I actually like evangelism, and, I'm, and we're doing it. We're going to do the door-to-door -door thing. We might knock on your door. You, you guys live in Preston Woods. We might knock on your door. I might do it. But the word evangelism has become kind of a dirty word, not only in the culture at large, but even within our Christian subculture. Um, so I think it's probably best not even to use the word evangelism. So maybe you should stop using the word evangelism. But before I stop using it, I just want to use it one more time, if, I don't, if you don't mind. Because I, I feel like I need to defend the word a little bit. It's not a dirty word. It's actually the same word as the word gospel. The word gospel is euangelion, which is the Greek word. And it's actually a conjunction of two words, the word angel and the, and the prefix en. The EU is N. So angel means a messenger, right? An angel is a messenger. So an angelos is a, a message, and then N means joyful. So a message that's very joyful, that brings joy. That's euangelion. You change the, you change the ending, and you got a messenger, right? An evangelist. And he's the one who brings, he's the messenger who brings a message that's good news. In fact, in the old ancient world, they used the word gospel and they used the word gospel messenger even when they weren't talking about the gospel. Just talking about people, the guy in Marathon who ran, he was an evangelist. He was preaching good news. Hey, we won the war. So gospel is a message of good news. Evangelist is a messenger who brings good news. So evangelism, well, honestly speaking, the word evangelism is not in the Bible. Um, I imagine it probably means the act of being an evangelist, of bringing good news, but it's not in the Bible because Paul doesn't ever make it an ism, you know, like here's how you do it. The four spiritual laws, the, the Romans road, the, the, the napkin with the hole on it. The, the, he never does that. It's not an ism. And so it's a good thing. It's just being a messenger of joyful news. 
Wow. So I think maybe a better word to use is the word missional. It's the new trendy word. Missional means being a missionary in your own zip code. So if you're a missionary, let's talk about missionaries for a second. I'm running out of time. If you're a missionary, you go overseas and you live in a culture and you adapt to that culture. Eventually, you'll, a missionary will dress like, let's say they went to Africa, missionary would dress like an African, they'll eat like an African, they'll talk like an African, eventually they'll start driving like Africans, you know, and, and, and they kind of blend into that culture. A missionary doesn't go in there and start preaching the truth of the gospel to the masses. An evangelist might do that, that's a different story, but a, a missionary probably was not going to do that. Why? Because they're in it for the long haul. They're going to live there. And they want to build genuine, intimate relationships where they can be wise to those outsiders. Their, their, their speech can be full of grace, you know, spice it up a little bit. And then they're going to know how they can finally share and when they can share the gospel. They're not going to go in there and blow everyone's doors out and tell them they're going to hell unless they get Jesus. You and I can do that in our own zip code. Because we're in it for the long haul. We live here. We own houses. We have careers. We have children in school. We're not going to blow in and stand on the street and preach the gospel. And if you do it, good for you. But most people don't. <laughs> Instead, we're missional. We just blend in. I know some of you are thinking, you got to be careful what you're saying here. I know. But, but, but Paul said it. All things to all people. You become part of the culture. You build intimate, real relationships. Your speech is full of grace. You spice it up a little bit. Talk about the baseball game. Talk about politics. Talk about hot wings. Pretty soon you're going to make a lot of friends because you're in it for the long haul. One of these days I think you'll look up and say, I got a lot of friends. And then you'll notice the fields are white into the harvest. And now you know when and how you ought to give an answer. That, that's, it's really that easy. I think that's exactly what Paul has just told us to do. Paul didn't say, I want you to go into St. Louis, pass out tracts, and tell people they're going to hell. <laughs> Be missional. Hey, incidentally, Jesus was missional. God is a missional God. He left his culture and he came to a new culture and he looked just like the culture he lived in. He dressed like that culture. He talked like that culture. He ate like that. And he ate a lot, right? He ate with a lot of people. And you know what? He was in it for the long haul. So he built real relationships that he's, people he hung out with, he slept with, he walked with. And his speech was full of grace. John 1 says, and he was full of grace. And man, was he salty. You know what I mean? I mean, he could tell some stories and he would tell stories about farmers and politics and finance and fishing and sewing. He knew how to just take a moment, tell a story and then salt it and spice it up. He would do things and say things that would shock people. He was spite. I mean, he was salty, you know, like sea salt kind of salt. We can be like Jesus. One thing I want to tell you is that we named this church Missio Dei because it means the mission of God. We want to be on the mission of God. We want to be missional. And not only that, Peter Wagner, who's, who's a missiologist, says the single most effective evangelistic method under heaven is church planting. Because I think that when you plant a new church, it forces you to pray for open doors to, to, to fine-tune your clear gospel, to build relationships with people so that you can draw them in and so that you can be salty and gracious to them. I mean, a new church plant 
forces you. You're not going to grow unless you do that. In fact, I've learned that there's two kinds of people who join church plants. There's the kind of person who may be frustrated with their own experiences that the church that they have experienced in the past wasn't on mission, wasn't being missional. And so they want to go to a church that's vibrantly on mission. And a church plant has to be because that's the only way you're going to grow. You've got to get people. <laughs> and the other kind of person, and here's the reason why I think church planting is so effective, is the person who's at the end of their rope. Their life is just destroyed and wrecked and they need Jesus. And they find him amongst a community of people who are praying for an open door for the gospel who have fine-tuned their clear gospel and who are living amongst them with graceful speech and salty speech. And that's why I think church planting is important and that's why we're gonna plant lots of church. Our, our goal is not to plant one church. If church planting is the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven, then we're gonna plant hundreds of churches. And even beginning of next year in 2013, we're already gonna be start talking about the second church plant. So I'm excited about this and I'm excited that you're here because if you're here and you're being a part of a church plant, chances are you're gonna start thinking missionally. They're going to start thinking, how can you salt it up? How can you engage your community missionally? And I think that's powerful. Jesus was hanging out with his disciples once, and he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He went through all the cities and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he, he turns to his disciples. He said, look at this. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And listen to what he says. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest.